Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful morning to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And as we jump into Lesson 7, we will incorporate this theme into this lesson, and it works out wonderfully, as the resurrection always does if you're preaching the gospel. And we thank the Lord for uh, the topic of our lesson, which is assurance. And I hope that as we leave today, we are full of joy and we are encouraged because I feel the last uh, two weeks have been a lot about the reason we need a Savior, which is sin. And sin is not a fun topic to talk about, and it's also very personal because it, it touches each, each of us to our core. If you are joining us for the first time this week, this is our seventh study of Our Effectual Helper, Focus on the Holy Spirit, and we are in the middle of looking at ourselves, the individual, and how the Holy Spirit works within us. And the judgment we know will, uh, what we have learned in weeks past, will judge all, men's by, all men by their own works. And so in the second portion of our study, we saw how we are all sinners, we are in need of help. And we all begin naturally as sinners, because the sin of Adam is inherent. We inherit this from him. It has flowed from Adam to Adam's race. And, of course, we do what pleases ourselves instead of what pleases God. That's sin, and it's rebellion. It cuts us off from fellowship with God, which is the reason we need a Savior. And that was the last two weeks when we were focusing on ourselves and how when the Lord comes to us by the Holy Spirit and regenerates our hearts upon hearing the preaching of the true gospel, which is the good news of Christ, there is this change within us known as regeneration, and at the same moment we have this justification. Regeneration is a rebirth or a making new of your heart, and it gives you an inclination to do the will of God and to have the desires to please God. And that is the only way we can please God, is through that work of regeneration. We hear the preaching of the gospel. We accept the message. Our faith is placed in Christ alone. And we are saved from our sins. We are made just before God. Not because of, of course, anything that we do, but because of the Savior's work, His sinless life on earth, and also his death in our place, and then rising again, he, can, he has the authority to justify sinners. And to justify simply means to make right with God. So the Holy Spirit not only convicts of sin, but makes it clear that we need this Savior, this perfect righteousness in Christ. Christ paid the debt by dying in our place, as we celebrated this last Friday, and celebrate is a strange word uh, when we're talking about death, but it is a remembrance. It is Good Friday because it was good that Christ was to die for the sin of mankind. Someone had to die 
Now, it should have been us, should have been the one who committed the sin, but Jesus took our place. The righteousness and perfection of Jesus, his work, is imputed or transferred to our account, and we are counted righteous, not because of anything good that we have done, but because Jesus did it for us. So we claim this gift by faith alone. Faith is also a gift of God, as we have studied. And all glory goes to God in that work of salvation from beginning to end. So from the moment the Spirit gives us a heart to love God and to want Him, regeneration, we are counted righteous before God, justified, and from that point forward, as we learned last week, begins the life of sanctification, or to make holy. The Holy Spirit, we learned, is our teacher. He illumines our minds to right doctrine as we study His Word, and by that convicts us to follow Him, Christ, properly. Anyone who says that they love Christ, but they don't read the Word of God, does not truly know Christ, because we know that those who love me keep my commandments, Christ said. So it's very important that we do that in loving obedience day by day. And it is day by day, because as we learn, we're living in the flesh. There's this conflict between our our new selves and our new desires and our flesh. And we know the Apostle Paul says that we live in a body of death, and that is sin. So we read about that in Romans 7. So the Holy Spirit strengthens us and exhorts us to progressively walk. And we read repeatedly in Scripture where we are supposed to walk with God. Walking implies progression. It's not stagnation. We're moving forward with the Lord to be holy as God is holy. So it is a command and not just a suggestion. Sanctification then is a synergistic work between the initiated work of the Holy Spirit and also our own responsibility to manifest that goodness that the Holy Spirit has begun in us so that the world may see our works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. If we were to look at a growth model of the Christian life, if I had a chart, it would look much like a Google stock summary, which would be nice to be an owner of some of those stocks. If you know anything about the Google stock and the progression that it has taken, there have been days of positive growth, but then you see the lulls of negative, of the negative. Sometimes very sharp drops, but there is always a rebound, at least with the Google stock. Not all stocks are like that, so I'm not telling you to go jump into the stock market right now, but I am saying that in the Christian life, our chart would be one of ultimately positive growth. So in these points of regression, when this process of sanctification, we know we're kind of sliding down, maybe we feel distanced from God, what is our response? Well, God's Word, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, will show us who we are in Christ once again. As I said before, it's a day-by-day walk with the Lord. Assurance is certain, 
is a certainty of something, and there is no greater assurance that we are Christ's and he is ours. So this morning, as we pray, let's ask God that, that we would, if we are in this lull of negative growth, perhaps, or regression, that we are reminded who we are in Christ, and that we all share in this assurance together. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning, and we thank you, Lord, for the remembrance of your resurrection on this third day. And Lord, as we consider all that you have done, we thank you, Lord, for this certainty that we know that in history you died for our sins as the Son of God, and that you are raised again for your glory and for our justification. Lord, may we not wander tossed about by our own doubts, but help us, Lord, to be certain of this truth that we hold to the point of the end of our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for your word and that it desires that we know who you are and we know who we are in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If we were lived, if we lived and if we were judged by our own feelings only, we would be very unstable and we would live very unstable lives. Now, you may be asking, well, whenever I'm convicted of sin, I feel very badly, as you should. That's conviction. And we should repent of that sin that we are convicted of, forsake it, and follow Christ. But there are many believers, true Christians, who are only ever in a state of uncertainty. They are dejected in their living. There is none of this joy unspeakable and full of glory. There's no knowing in whom they have believed to the point of singing praise to God out of the abundance of their hearts. It's very easy to lose sight of who we are in Christ when what we use as our foundation is our own feeling. Our moments of weakness due to sin and doubt do not result in God ultimately abandoning his sheep. We read in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. How can Paul be so confident on behalf of someone else, other believers? Well, he is confident because these are the promises of God. The first way that we think about this promise of God and our assurance is in this word, arabon, the Greek word meaning earnest or pledge. We could also say promise. The Spirit himself is our arabon. The definition of the word is a payment of part of a purchase in advance or a first installment, or down payment, or guarantee. Any believer indwelt by the Spirit of God, which is every believer, has this earnest or guarantee. 
this Arabon, denotes that God has made an investment in the believer's soul. 1 Corinthians 6.20 states, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We see here that a great transaction has taken place. What did it cost? What was the purchase price? We know it was Christ, God's only Son, who obediently gave his life and raised it in the power of the Spirit that we might be purchased, redeemed. Is there a greater cost for your soul? No greater cost. He continues to give us himself then in the person of the Holy Spirit. This indwelling is our guarantee that he will keep us from falling ultimately into a state of enslavement to sin. He, the Holy Spirit, seals us. Erebon is used specifically in 2 Corinthians 1.22, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, this promise or guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5.5 says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose of God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, Arabon, and Ephesians 1.14, who is given as a pledge, there it is again, for our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. We are his, remember, to the praise of his glory. We should be assured that it is God who will keep us by the power of his spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in us. And I say us, the church of Christ. And will complete this work, for it is his mighty work. While the Spirit's present indwelling provides instruction, illumination, and empowerment for sanctification now, there is this eschatological promise of a future work in this consummation, this perfecting of God's creation that is guaranteed. So we have the Holy Spirit now, but that is the first installment the promise of the future. Romans 8.11 tells us, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, there's that certainty, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Will also means there is a coming work. But even before that certain future, the Spirit is giving life to these bodies of death. The final glorification, also known as the consummation, will not be a deliverance from the body altogether. Those people who see heaven and those in heaven as simply spirits haven't read the full scripture because the whole man, complete, in Christ, just as Christ sits at the right hand of God bodily. 
so will we have bodies raised incorruptible. The final glorification then involves this future of the whole man being perfected, including the body. Sinclair Ferguson writes in his work, The Holy Spirit, he says, In this capacity, the Spirit is the earnest of the final inheritance, that promise of the coming inheritance. His presence as life-giving Spirit in the body of death heightens, it raises rather than diminishes, the Christian's awareness of the tensions, we've talked about the conflict, of the life in the Spirit. Any assumption that the fullness of the Spirit relieves the conflicts of this life misshapes the New Testament teaching. In fact, the presence of the Spirit tends to maximize rather than minimize the sense of contrast between this present struggle and the future. So as the Spirit, that's the end of that quote, as the Spirit maximizes this sense of the coming glorification in our present trials, we long all the more for that day and should also be assured that God is moving us toward that end. This morning I woke up and read about uh, churches in Sri Lanka and hotels that were housing people for Easter celebrations. Bombings. 130 people had died this morning on the other side of the world, evil. Christ said that his sheep would be like him, slaughtered for his name's sake. And the families of those people, do they have assurance? We should have an assurance as they do, but we normally don't have that intense passion because we're not faced with that dramatic conflict of this present life compared to the glory that lies ahead, this eternal weight of glory. It touched me this morning, so I decided to share that. That is the reason that we so long for this coming glorification, and let us be assured that it is coming. Aparche is a Greek word that means first fruits, and the Spirit himself is the first fruits of our coming glorification. Romans 8.23 says, And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Groan. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body. So this verse shows this already occurring but not yet happening vision in which the indwelling spirit already now proves that we're the children of God, but it talks about we will be eagerly awaiting, or we are eagerly awaiting this coming adoption. So this already now proves that we are the children of God as adopted sons and daughters into the family of God, but we have not yet received this resur excuse me, resurrection of our glorified bodies. Paul employs this aparche in this verse, this first fruits, 
In an agricultural metaphor, the Jewish first fruits of the harvest both proved the beginning of the harvest. They had the harvest in hand. They could enjoy it and eat it. And they actually celebrated this first fruits. Uh, We talked about that with Pentecost and how they would give of their harvest to the Lord. This beginning of the harvest in hand enjoyed was also a promise of the coming harvest that was yet to be complete. These are the first fruits, but the rest of the harvest, the fullness of the harvest is coming. And we have this guarantee of our own harvest or receiving of what God has prepared for us because we already possess the Holy Spirit. He is our aparche, or our first fruits. This is a confident hope. Hope is, in the scriptural sense, is not a wishful thought, but a certainty that will not prove disappointing. In Romans 5, 2 and 5, 5, a combination of those verses, it's in your handout, it says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, this first fruit, in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God, the certainty of things future. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So these verses make it clear that we can have such a confident hope because God, it's Him. It's not how hard we hold on to Him. It's His love that seals us. This promise that we will be His forever. We will not be disappointed. How many times in your life has disappointment been the norm? Some children are raised in homes of broken promises. And they resent hope. They resent promises. Because it's only disappointing. Even things that we would hope would remain true in a worldly view, like even the ground beneath our feet, proves unstable. I always think of, uh, in Bowling Green, Kentucky, there's a Corvette museum down there. And there's security footage of about five or six years ago, I believe it was. Middle of the morning, the ground beneath the Corvette Museum fell through. These priceless cars, one of a kind, fell into the abyss. And they actually fell so far that they didn't care to retrieve them. They're still there. So even the ground beneath our feet proves unstable, but not God's promise. Our redemption redemption will be made complete, even the redemption of our bodies. Something else that I've already pointed out in this verse 5, the love of God, this is not some generalized mystical love that we can't place our finger on. People say, well, it's really hard to define love. Well, this love was clearly seen in Christ coming to earth. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 tells us, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world 
so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it is his love that guarantees through the Holy Spirit that we are his. This should flood our conscience daily with understanding, yes, but more than that, enjoyment. That Christ is the Son of God who gave himself for me. And Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He used that personal pronoun again. It's not just for the world, as people say, this universal, you know, God's not going to send anyone to hell because Christ died for the whole world. Well, Christ actually talks about hell more than he talks about heaven in Scripture. So we know that people who are responsible for their own works, their own wages of sin, there is a judgment to come. But thankfully, we can rejoice, those who trust in Christ, not because of what we've done, that he gave himself up for us. This will lead to this joy unspeakable and full of glory. In 1 Peter 1.8, Peter writes, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. And that's why I've been saying that phrase, joy, full of glory. That the Son of God loved me, gave himself up for me. If we were not supposed to take it as a personal gift, that God gave himself up for the individual, then we would be disregarding much of these promises to the believer. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6 tells us, even in trial and trouble, when it seems the least probable time to reflect on this glorious joy of our adoption, such as these people in Sri Lanka, across the world, how could they be joyful now? Well, it is in these times that joy shines from the true believer. And I'm not trivializing grief at all, because the families of these people are going through real grief. However, in that grief, there shines the light of Christ. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That is an amazing statement. And only people who have gone through grief, real grief and sorrow, can recognize this joy that also comes from the Holy Spirit. And perhaps this is why Christians in some of the most persecuted areas of the world or who have endured the trial of life even here are the most assured and joyful in the gift of their salvation. This foretaste of things to come, this first fruit of the Spirit, this present taste of heaven is savored 
and enjoyed more than the bitterness that they are currently experiencing. Moving on, the spirit is also called the sphragis or the seal. In Ephesians 4.30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And we've talked about that verse before. This word seal in the Greek is sphragis, which means to confirm or prove or authenticate by the use of a sign of authority. And in the old monarchies, when a king made a law, he sealed it with his signet ring. It was that ring of the law that no man could break. And we read about this same kind of seal in Revelation repeatedly. You know, who is worthy to open the seals? Well, it is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sphragis authenticates our salvation. Because we have him, it marks the believer with the sign of the king. I was contemplating whether or not to, to talk about this particular point because it is a difference in teaching in the Christian history. But the Puritans, whom I love, even Martin Lloyd-Jones himself, taught that the sealing of the Spirit was apart from or different from our conversion experience. Now, in our studies, we have affirmed over and over again that the baptism of the Spirit is at the moment of regeneration. When we are justified, the Holy Spirit indwells us at that moment. The Puritans taught that the Holy Spirit does indwell the believer at regeneration, but there is yet a movement of the Holy Spirit, a work that he does post-conversion, after that conversion experience, that they would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they would say this is when the Holy Spirit assures the believer that they are Christ. Instead of coming to Christ in fear and trembling, trying to escape the judgment, they are assured and they embrace the fullness of the gospel and they sing and they write hymns and they passionately proclaim his gospel to the nations, and they would say that this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is different than what normative, I say normative, what we teach, what the Christian church today teaches, that the Holy Spirit, what our teaching is, the Holy Spirit is our seal. He is our mark of the King. We are marked by him because it is him, not some work that he does after our conversion experience. Now, MacArthur does a good job of talking about this. John MacArthur says that the Christian church is not made up of the haves and the have-nots. The Christian church is not those who have had this post-conversion experience of this supposed baptism of the Holy Spirit, as the Puritans had taught. And these are very, very sound teachers. We're not talking about no names here. But this was still their teaching. And they said it has to be so because if you look at all of the examples through Scripture, and I'll give you a few,
This is from J.C. Ryle. I skipped a few things here. Faith is that core trembling woman who came behind Jesus in the pressing crowd and touched him of his garment. Assurance is Stephen standing in the midst of his murderers saying, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We also have faith as Peter's drowning cries, he began to sink in the water. Lord, save me! Assurance is that same Peter declaring before the council later that Christ was the stone set before the builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any, in any other. Faith is the anxious, trembling voice, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Assurance is the confident challenge, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemns? Faith is Saul, and we're talking about the New Testament Saul, not King Saul, praying in the house of Judah, sent sorrowful and blind and alone. I apologize, I had mistyped a few things. Assurance is Paul, the aged prisoner, looking calmly into the grave and saying, I know whom I have believed. So the Puritans, as examining all of the scripture, came to this conclusion that there must be some post-conversion experience. Some would call it a second baptism of the Holy Spirit where people are assured of whom they have believed. This seal is the Holy Spirit himself. So let us be clear that all of us who are believers are in the same class. We are not in two different classes. The only difference I would hold is a maturity of understanding. Now, as we go through this lesson today, I hope already that you have a renewed assurance of your salvation. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we find, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is him given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So it's him. He is our seal. 2 Timothy 2.19 tells us, because of this seal, the Lord knows who are his. It is that mark that seals us. And the world knows it too, by the way. Why are, why, why are Christians across the world persecuted? Because his mark is upon them. They know that they are Christians and they hate Christ. Now they can't see this seal. They can't see it visibly with our eyes. That would be very, very neat, I would have to say. To look in the mirror and see that seal on our forehead, that mark of the king. We don't see it physically. We don't see it yet, but we will. 
but the world sees it through our works. Now, I don't want to fault the Puritans entirely. just want to say this. Their purpose was to elevate the importance of assurance. We must know whom we have believed. It is a catalyst for walking closer with the Lord. We love him more. But although proposed with good intentions, we have a different teaching of the sealing. So, these examples of the saints that we talked about earlier, these with faith and those with assurance, as the Puritans would say, there was a difference there, does not negate the fact that all of us who are believers are sealed with the Spirit, period. Now, you're like, Bo, could you get off this subject? Could you stop talking about sealing already? Well, I will for this lesson. But it is important. I don't think we could talk about it enough. Yes, sir. Blake was saying that the thief on the cross, very short span of life. There wasn't much time for this post-conversion experience. The Holy Spirit at that moment, and we know Pentecost had not come yet, but he was with Christ beside him on the cross, and Christ, by his own word, said, you will be with me in paradise. He had that assurance on the cross, and it was not a, it was not a separate event that was worked through in a Christian maturity or a result of a sanctified holy living and that kind of thing. It was a gift of God. So let us always remember that the Holy Spirit is our gift for our own assurance. Thank the Lord. Finally, sonship. Sonship. The Spirit is only once called the Spirit of sonship. In Romans 8 verses 14 through 17, it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, we are heirs also. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If we suffer, if we indeed suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Sonship is the highest of the privileges of redemption. As adopted sons and daughters, we are led by the Spirit of God. Being sons and daughters of the Holy King, we are commanded also to follow Christ, the firstborn of many brethren, as Scripture tells us. We follow him to put to death the deeds of the flesh. In so doing, we 
make known this reality that we are indeed being led by the Spirit and have received the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of sonship. We are His sons and His daughters. When the Spirit testifies with our spirit, it actually fulfills Old Testament law. There must be two witnesses to affirm a truth in the court. And in the court of heaven, we know this truth is truth because we have the witness of the Spirit, and we also have our own witness with Him affirming that we are His. Because we are children of God, we also are heirs of God, not partial heirs with stipulations, stipulations on how we are to receive our inheritance, but we become joint heirs with Christ. To the believer, son, daughter, even now, Yes, your glorification and inheritance are yet to be fully realized, but there is God's word affirming that we are children now. So whenever your electric bill comes, and they say you're late on your electric bill, don't say, I am the son of the king. Do you not know who I am? Nah, you can't do that. We are law-abiding citizens, okay? But we should know who we are now. The weight we feel of the world at this present time, anxieties, angst, this unknown fear, known fears, our own personal shortcomings, all of these stored up together on the scale of of importance, if you can visualize this with me. Over here we have all of the world, and over here we have a coming weight of glory that the Bible says outweighs them all. It tips the scales without, without even a, it's like a brick and a feather. You can't compare this eternal weight of glory whenever our sonship is finally realized. So what I'm saying is, endure, look forward to that promise of sonship being fully realized. We will inherit what has been promised from God. Amazing. So do we always, moment by moment, recall our reality in Christ, our adoption into the family of God? We are not some great nephew of the family, three times removed, who has a different last name because of some distant relation, who no one knows at the family reunion. You know who I'm talking about. You've been to family reunions. You know who that person is. We are the son or daughter of the king. Assurance of our place in the family is the claim of every believer. It is not in the power of ourselves that we simply claim this sonship. It is the spirit who bears witness for us first because he is in us. And then because of that, we can bear witness with him that we are his in assurance. So are these things that we've talked about, some spiritual opiate to just manage our lives when we're feeling low and give us this wishful thinking? If that was the case, I personally would denounce them with passion. We see false teachings around the world that do this kind of thing with the 
uh, health and wealth gospel and prosperity gospel and these things like that. How cruel is false assurance? How cruel. That said, these promises that we have discussed from Scripture are promises for those who are in Christ. If you are not trusting Christ as Savior, these promises are not to you until the gospel is received. Christ is received. The Holy Spirit is received. Then, then you can claim these promises. And that is black and white in Scripture. There is no way around it. There is no other path to receiving these promises and this assurance. Resurrection Sunday is the proof that all these promises will come to pass. God never lies. He always tells the truth. He rose from the dead, just as he said he would do. People would think that was impossible. He doesn't lie. And he's coming again, just as he said he would do. He will judge the living and the dead, just as he said he will do. I'll end with 1 John 5, 10 and 12. It says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, the Holy Spirit. The one who does not believe God has made him, God, a liar because he has not believed in this promise that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It is that simple. Life is not a guessing game, thankfully. May we thank the Lord that he has given us certainty. In that, we may serve him passionately in all joy. Are there any thoughts before we close this morning? Yes. Very well. Very well could be. Yes. Well, I would say they have come, you say they have come to faith, but they do not have the assurance. Well, I would say it comes down to the authority of the scriptures. The authority of the scriptures say that Christ is the Son of God in whom they have believed. So you're saying they are Christians, right? So I would say to that person, on what basis do you believe that Christ is the Son of God to be a believer? And they would say, well, you know, the Bible tells me so. Well, you can point to them all of these scriptures of assurance that we have talked about and said, if you believe that Christ is the Son of God, then you must believe this. Because if you don't believe this, then you're calling God a liar. And that's a very, very, very important, um, not, an, not an accusation, but it's a warning. Because if we say that we trust Christ and we have the truth of the word... 
then what Christ are we believing in? Do you see what I'm saying? It's very, it's very hard, I would say, to tell that to someone. And assurances, uh, as we've already seen, our levels of progression and sanctification and assurance are different. But it comes down to, do you believe all of Scripture or just the part about Jesus? Because if we take part of him in the Scripture, we must take all of him in the Scripture. That's what I would tell the person. So, yes. Tommy, thank you. Sorry about that, Tommy. Hmm. So Tommy was saying the faith is the evidence of things not seen and the assurance of things hoped for. And this hope, as we said, is a certainty of things to come. It's not, you know, wishful thinking and that kind of thing. So because God is true, we can trust his promises. So thank you for the questions. Yeah, Marianne? Mm-hmm. And understand justification, propitiation, um, and, and everything that he accomplished for the believer there, and that it is applied to each and every believer. Mm-hmm. I think it is, it is a building of knowledge that brings that assurance as well. Because you have to, uh, I think everybody, if they're honest, has to say that they So Marianne was saying, those who struggle with assurance look back to the work of Christ. And that is the basis of our assurance. Because, as we've discussed before, if any part of Christ's ministry had fallen through, we wouldn't have this assurance. But it is by his completed, perfected work, perfect work, that we have this assurance. Thank you, Marianne. All right, we are out of time. So thank you for your input. I appreciate that. And let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we have discussed these things, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which is our guide. And without your word, I wouldn't be able to teach. And without your word, this lesson would mean nothing to us. So we thank you, Lord, that uh, you give it to us. And may you also, through your spirit, illumine our minds to um, see it and also to trust it by his empowering. And we also pray, Lord, for uh, those who will hear Uh, people who go out of this place, may we also expound this, exhort this assurance to other people who are believers that are grieving and doubting. And Lord, it is a very real existence when we are in that state of mind. So we pray, O Lord, for your help, uh, because you are our help, our only help. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.